go out into our world, the world that God has placed us in, to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to, to share in a, a variety of ways that there is no other name by which we can be saved but the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. What we're really doing as evangelists is calling people to shift their worship allegiance. That's what Wayne began our, our service with, is recognizing that God created us to be worshipers and we will worship, we do worship. Every person that has ever been created from Adam until the last person is created as a worshiper. The problem is, unless we are saved by Christ, unless our eyes are open, we worship the creation rather than the Creator. And that worship of the creation comes in all forms, but really it's logically quite simple. If you don't worship God through Jesus Christ, you're worshiping something in creation. Even if that something is an idea that was spawned in the mind of a creature. So you either worship the living God who is the Creator, or you worship the creation Those are our two options. So as evangelists, then, we're going into the world to say, stop worshiping the creation. Begin to worship the Creator. The only way to do that is through Jesus Christ, who created all things created by Him, for Him, and through Him. I uh, am not very good at math. Uh, for example, I think that 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 1. It's because I'm a theologian and I'm not a mathematician. <laughs> but I also know that in math, though I'm not very good at it, if you make a mistake at the beginning, even if everything that you do after that is right, you're wrong. So you make a mistake at the very beginning and... Then you show a wonderful logic. You do all of your, your, your calculations properly. The answer that you get is, is wrong. It's interesting. The text that we're going to be looking at today, that's exactly where Paul takes us. Uh, as we go out into the world to share the gospel, we need to know what the gospel is. And where Paul begins discussing the gospel, he begins with worship. That's fascinating. How many of us would think that the beginning of the gospel is worship? Not the end. Obviously, we know that the end is worship, right? After you understand the gospel, that draws us into worship. But the very beginning is false worship. It's the gospel is required because people are worshiping creation rather than the creator. So as we begin to really delve into uh, being evangelists and we're looking at worship, it's important that we know the beginning of our gospel. Would you please stand with me and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The book of Romans, while you're finding your spot, the book of Romans, I believe, is Paul's preaching notes. That this is, whenever Paul went somewhere, this is what he preached. He preached the book of Romans and he, he would, he would take days 
and weeks and months to just unpack the things that we have in the book of Romans. The reason I say that is he sent his preaching notes to the church in Rome because he kept wanting to go there, but he was inhibited from going there for whatever reason. God prevented, and I love this, the sovereignty of God. God prevented Paul from getting to Rome so that God could publish Paul's preaching notes so that we would have them. That is beautiful. Now, the beginning of Paul's preaching notes, once you get past the preamble, the beginning of the Gospel, that's what we're going to read. It's all about worship. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that they, that is us, all of humanity, are without excuse. For although they, that is we, all of humanity, knew God and know God, they and we did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And here it is. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we affirm that You are the Creator and You alone deserve our worship with the Son and the Spirit, one God. We thank You, Holy Triune God, that You created all things, that You always have been, that You are and You always will be, and that is unique to You. No one and no other thing can say that they have always been, are, and will be forever. So we worship You, our Creator. Please divert our gaze from the things You have created that we may enjoy them with grateful and thanksgiving hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I mean, there's a lot of bad news in this first chapter, and it it continues through chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Paul just spells out our total depravity, the problem, the need for the gospel. And and we're going to touch on that today, but really the the point is to look at the inverse. If that's the problem, what's the solution? If, If the problem is people that are darkened in their minds and in their hearts because they have worshipped the creation rather than the Creator. Well, the inverse is what we want to do, isn't it? 
as God's people? We really want to worship the living God. I have a number of observations, and as we go through these observations, we will sort of take a look at the text in a little more detail. The first observation that I want us to notice, and this is so obvious that it almost doesn't bear mentioning, but it's, it's absolutely essential, and it must not be that obvious in the world in which we live. And I wonder if as Christians sometimes we fall into the same trap. We, not that we don't know this, but are we mindful of it? First observation. God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen in creation. That's the starting point for worship. The starting point is this. We, we look around and we see glorious things. And, and let's say, well, you say, well, I don't live in a beautiful part of town or whatever. Well, that doesn't matter. Wherever you are, just look at your own hands. Uh, just consider for a moment your ability to think and to speak and to move and to feel the wonder of God's creation. Now, there are two narratives and more, but two major narratives in our world right now. One narrative says that God is the one who's created all things. That ought to draw us into worship of our Creator. The other narrative says that we're all here by random chance, that there's, there's no divine, creative, intelligent movement behind who we are or the world in which we live, that, that we've evolved into this beautiful reality that, that all of the stardust just happen to fall perfectly and align and over time we've become who we are. Now, without getting into a debate about creation and evolution, what I want to get to is the heart of both of those positions. The one says there is a God. The other says there's not a God. Now, which makes most sense? That there is a God or that there is not a God? Based on your scientific observations of the world in which you live. Well, we're in a building. Let me ask you. Does it make more sense that these bricks and drywall and paint and pews and pulpits and lights just sort of landed here? Or that there was a builder? It's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? There's a builder. When you look at a beautiful painting, does it make most sense to say that those paints just sort of accidentally fell to the canvas? Or that there was a painter. When you read a book, I know the theory that, you know, if you have infinite amount of time and you put uh, a chimpanzee in a room with a typewriter and he lived forever, he would eventually write every novel of Shakespeare. I, I understand the logic of that. However, when you read a book, knowing that we don't have chimpanzees locked up in infinite rooms with infinite time, does it make most sense that the book just happened to write itself or that there was a writer? You know where I'm going, right? I mean, these are, these are so self-evident and yet there are millions and billions of people who would say to us, I see the world. 
I see it's a glorious place. It's beautiful. I see that there are rational creatures. I see that there are all manner of creatures. No God. It doesn't make sense. And so as we go out to evangelize, we have to begin to have that conversation with people that want to have that conversation. Not to ridicule them, but to just point out what really ought to be very self-evident. So observation one, taken from Romans 19 and 20, God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen in creation. The fact that there is a creation strongly suggests to us that there is a creator. Let's take a look at those verses again. What can be known about God is plain to us. The the Bible says them, but let's just make it more personal. Paul's talking about humanity. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Now, this is really interesting. We can go further than just saying that there is a creator. What we ought to know about God by looking at creation is something about his invisible attributes. That is, we haven't had a face-to-face interaction with God, but yet by looking at the things that he has made, we can learn much about who God is. So we have different kinds of revelation. We have what's called general revelation, which is creation. And if you never had a Bible in your hands, there's much to know about God by studying the way in which he has revealed himself in creation. Then there's special revelation, which is the Bible, where God, by the Holy Spirit, spoke and wrote through human pens, prophets and apostles. And then there's personal revelation when the Word became flesh and Jesus Christ Himself, who is eternal God, became a human being and revealed God to us. It's by Christ that we know who God is. But what Paul's saying is here is get rid of the personal revelation, get rid of the special revelation, just look at the general revelation. There's much to know about God. And to tie this back into our topic, which is worship within the context of evangelism, This is praiseworthy. The things we discover about God ought to draw us into worship. So what do we learn? Well, we get a couple. I don't think this is an exhaustive list. But what does it say there in verse 20? The first thing that we learn is about his eternal power. Eternal. Even if we don't know that much about science... It seems that humanity has always known that creation had a starting point. You go to any ancient religion, you go to any philosophy, and every every group of individuals seems to know that creation had a starting point. Now, if we recognize that creation itself must have a creator, then the creator has to be before the starting point. Do you see the logic? Eternal. So when we look at creation, we say that this is good, but it hasn't always been. And we say, well, there's a creator who is before. What we're affirming is the eternality of God. The fact that God has always been. Now, you look around at creation, you look up to the stars, you look across the fields. You, you plant seeds of the ground and you see them grow and you say, that is amazing. Therefore, whoever existed before creation, whoever had the idea to create this, whoever existed before 
and had the power to make this happen must be a powerful being. So by looking at creation, we know that there is a God who is eternal and powerful. What else do we learn about God? His divine nature. What does this mean? Well, I think Paul is contrasting this to uh, physical nature. We see, we see rhythms and cycles in nature, right? We, we see order. And, and so whether you're an astronomer and you say, wow, look at how year after year the sky moves back and forth. And you see patterns in the sky. Or, or whether you're a farmer and you say, I know I have to plant in this season and harvest in that season. Or whether or not in our modern age you're, you're a chemist and you can look and you see the organization of chemicals in, in the substance of things. And I'm not a scientist, so I don't, that wasn't very scientific. But you, you look and you see order in the minutia of, of the world. You say, wow, God must be a God of order, a God of rhythm. The other thing that you notice is, well, we're relational beings. So, and we're creatures, right? So we're part of creation. We can learn something about God from, from ourselves. And we say, wow, God must be a relational God. By the way, this is a great evidence for the Trinity. Because if we believe in a God who pre-existed creation and we see relationality in creation, there must be relationality within God before creation because the creation is a reflection of who God is. That's what we learn here. We learn about God by looking at creation, which means there must be relationship within God. Therefore, God can't be alone, though he is one God, Trinity. The relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit uh, demonstrated in creation most beautifully in humanity because we are the most relational among God's creatures. Not the only, but the most. Fascinating. Do you see? Now, by looking just at general revelation, we know that God is to be worshipped. Therefore, we're told, every person is without excuse. Everyone will be held accountable on the day of judgment. God will say to them, how could you not have known that I am? Observation one, God's eternal power and divine nature can be seen in creation. And as we see it, as we perceive it, we don't worship creation. We say, wow, that is beautiful. I think we could even say of creation, that is glorious. So long as the glory of creation draws us to worship the creator and not the creation. Right? So, so creation itself has to work as a, as a, a signal, a, a sign pointing to the creator and is not an end in and of itself. There, there's a whole much that we could say about that, but let's move on. Let's look at, um, Observation number two, and this is tied very closely to observation number one. Observation number two, God created us, humanity, with the ability to know that he exists. And we've already sort of touched on this. Let's take a look at verse 21. 
although they knew God, that is humanity as a group, we know that there is a God. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the first part of this, well, this observation, then the second part of the verse, we'll look at observation number three. But for this observation, God created us, perhaps uniquely. I don't know. I mean, I suppose the angels as well, so we're not unique. Uh, but definitely for humanity, God created us with the capacity to look at creation and draw the connection. So, so we might say, well, you know, God, yes, if there's someone there to point it out to me, I can see the connection between God and creation. Well, that breaks down too. We can't just say if somebody had pointed out to me, because what we learn through this special revelation is that God created humanity to instinctively, at the very base of our, our, ourselves, know the connection between God and creation. It's a gift that God has implanted in the human being, in our constitution. What it means for us to be human is to say creation, hmm, creator. It's common to all people. Now, I know that there are um, perhaps handicaps that might prevent somebody from making the connection. And yet, in the limited experience that I have with people who are have a mental handicap, often what is so veiled to the intelligent is so obvious to the simple the glory of God so he God has created us to know him and that begins by knowing that he exists observation number three which is the second part of this verse the natural response to God's existence is, therefore, to honor Him, to give Him thanks. If we look around and we say, okay, there's a God in heaven, He pre-existed creation, He created everything, and we are a part of that creation, unless God created the universe, and unless He had a plan to create me and you and us, then we wouldn't be here. Well, the very first thing we ought to do is say, wow, God deserves my honor. God deserves my respect because God can exist without me, but I cannot exist without God. That's simple, but that's, that also is profound. God is self-existent. He can exist without any of us, but none of us can exist without Him. And, and that goes on many levels. None of us exists without a universe to exist in, but more than that, again, as we know more about God through the Scriptures themselves, we know that God predestined us into existence. Before the foundation of the world, God said, I know the name of every person that will be born into this world. We learn in the Psalms that while we were in our mother's wombs, He knit us together. We, we know that God is very personally, very intimately involved in each of our creation stories, each of our, our births. Our conceptions, our existence. More than that, we know that Jesus Christ sustains all of creation by the power of His Word. So if at any moment God says, you know, I'm done with this creation, then creation, as massive as it is, 
And we can't even look to the other side of this universe that God has created, which he holds in the palm of his hand. He said, at any moment, if God says, I'm done, everything sucks into nothingness again, and we don't exist. We are here today because the Creator is also a sustainer. So we honor God. Do you see how, how awful it is for any person who is living and breathing and, and enjoying life not to honor the one who has made it all possible? And we give thanks to God. We say, thank you, God, for creating me. We haven't even got to the gospel yet. We haven't even got to salvation And we're thanking God and we're praising God. Now, we know that there's much to praise and thank God for. We praise Him for Jesus Christ. We thank Him for saving us for our sins. We thank Him that He opened our eyes to see clearly the reality so that we could actually call on Jesus Christ to take our sins. We we know all of that. But here, in this context, we are to honor and to praise God. In short, we are to worship the Creator because without Him, we are not here. That's the right response in fact let's go even beyond just saying it's the right response it it ought to be the natural response it just logically it makes sense that all of creation would honor the creator which leads us to observation four and this is where it gets dark fallen humanity neither honors god nor gives him thanks They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Think about how that would make God feel. Here is God who created a beautiful universe and he created us human beings to be the climax, the culmination of that creation. And he gives us dominion over it all. He he says, I've created great things. But I am placing you, humanity, into this good creation, and it's all yours. Have it. I want you to to serve and cultivate it, enable it to flourish. I've I've left it, so to speak, a blank canvas for you to cultivate, to have dominion over, not to rule over oppressively, but to cultivate so that it will flourish. It's yours. I said this before and I hold to this. It's a big universe. I really believe that had we not fallen, we would have been on uh, on so many other planets by now as a race. Because God gave us creation. All of creation. That's why the universe is so big. He didn't just give us this world. That would have been enough, by the way. But He says, have it all. No. It's not good enough. We want to be the Creator. That was the original lie, wasn't it? Satan says, I know that God has created all of this and He's created you and you're in His image and He's given you everything. He won't let you eat from that tree. That doesn't seem fair. You know why? You know why? You know why He doesn't want you to eat from that tree? Because He knows that when you eat that, you'll become like Him. And then you can take over. 
What a lie. He's already given us everything. What is there to take over? Well, we weren't content. We wanted to have the throne of God in heaven because we did not honor Him. We did not give Him thanks. We wanted to be Him. You say, well, that was Adam. That was Eve. That's us. That's that's fallen humanity. Every person since. All of the children of Adam, all of the children of Eve are born into this world wanting to take God's throne by force. Tragic. Now, what would you do if you were God in that circumstance? I'd say, whoops. <laughs> I have the power to uncreate, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm just, this never happened and nobody needs to know. Right? Because honestly, who would have known? God could have even uncreated all of the angels in heaven. Let's start this over, but that's not what God did. We're getting ahead of ourselves. Observation four, fallen humanity neither honors God nor gives Him thanks. As you go out as Christ's ambassadors, just think about how that breaks Christ's heart. This is a totally different motivation for evangelism. To go out because, because we as a, as a race of creatures have offended the Creator and broken His heart. Because we will not honor Him and give Him thanks as the Creator. Observation 5. Fallen humanity worships creation rather than God our Creator. You see, as we started, God created all of us to be worshipers. We're going to worship because God created us to be worshipers. So, if we won't worship God the Creator, our only other option is to worship something in creation. Now think about how that makes God feel. You, why? why? Why are you worshiping something I created? Wouldn't you want to worship that which is greater? The One who is greater? The Creator? Wouldn't you want to honor and give thanks to the One who made the Son? Who made the moon? Who made the stars? Who made the galaxies? Who made the animals? Your ability to think and to, to work and to be creative and to enjoy culture and the arts. Why would you worship that? Why wouldn't you worship me, the source of that? From God comes every good thing. So what good thing is there in creation that, that draws us away from God and we begin to worship that good thing? God's greater. Whatever it is, whatever it is that, that takes the place of God, God's greater. God is greater. He's the one to be worshipped. And yet, verse 22, claiming to be wise, humanity became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God unparalleled glory for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You think about all the world religions that worship some kind of animal or totem pole or statue or um, whatever person. But it's more than just those things. It's ideas and probably at the root of it all is self-worship, which we're going to see here in a moment. 
the beginning of false worship is the, the worship of self over God. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They said, you know what, serpent, you're right. I'm going to worship me. I want to be worshipped instead of worshipping God. Down in verse 25, humanity exchanged the truth about God. That is, that He is eternally glorious. He's before creation. He's the Creator. All good things come from Him. He's the only one that deserves honor and thanks. That's the truth about God. For a lie, what is the lie? That any creature could compare to God. That anything in creation could compare to God. That's the lie. And so they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Exchanging that which is of infinite value for something which is less. Now, again, just in common sense, if, if I have a hundred dollars and you have twenty dollars and I say, let's trade. Who had the hundred? I had the hundred. <laughs> I'm the fool, right? I have a hundred dollars. You have twenty. I say, Hey, I would rather have your twenty dollars than my hundred dollars. When you say I'm being a fool. That's exactly what we do when we worship the creation rather than the creature, our creator. It's, in fact, 120, this, the gap isn't big enough. God is just so much greater than creation. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for something he, he made. Now, God wants us to enjoy His creation, but He never ever wants or intended His creation to replace Him. Now, this is what I would call a total breakdown of worship. There's still worship happening, but it's a total breakdown of worship. What happens when worship breaks down? Do you know what the source of all of our problems is? Improper worship. The whole, the ills of the world. Do you know what the problem with the world is? Improper worship. That it all starts because we, as a race of creatures, have our worship priorities mixed up. Do you see how important then it is for the church to get worship right? This is not some small thing. This is not some small thing that we, we do. This is central to the redemption of the world. If we want to give the world a solution to the problems that ails the world, if we want to sit down with sinners and share with them the glory of the immortal God, then the worship in the church has got to be functioning. It's got to be working. We have to understand it. We have to understand what it is all about. It's about giving honor and thanks to the Creator rather than the creature. And when that breaks down, when we flip, and our hearts are divided and we give our hearts equally or more to anything or anyone in creation, that we no longer have the solution that the world needs. It's why Jesus said the most inflammatory thing that you could imagine. Anyone who does not hate his mother and brothers is not fit for me. Now, okay, obviously there's some hyperbole there. He's exaggerating. God wants us to love our mother and our brothers. We get that. 
But what he's saying is, well, hold on a minute. And he's talking to people of faith, by the way. It's not like he went out and was talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers there. He says, listen, the, the love that you have for those who are closest to you better pale in comparison to the love you have for me. Otherwise, you've got mixed up priorities in worship. And we begin to worship, even as Christians. We begin to worship the creation rather than the Creator. It's so easy. So easy to to fall into this problem. So, what happens when worship breaks down? Verse 24, Therefore, in light of the breakdown of worship, so we started this. We decided to worship creation rather than the Creator. And because of that, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We're repeated because it's a creation problem. Go down to verse 26. And for this reason, so he's stressing it over and over again, because of this mixed up worship, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those who are con- for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now this is very peculiar. We just, we've been talking about worship, right? But uh, whether we worship the creator or creation, and all of a sudden we're in a text about homosexuality. How did Paul get there? What's the connection? There is a connection. A very uh, uh, clear connection. I wanted to say a number of things about this, and we can't exhaust this. This is, Important, And I want to begin by saying, listen, if we're going to talk about uh, homosexuality, we need to be on our knees praying that God would help us to love earnestly and honestly men and women who, who are struggling with same-sex attraction. The time for the church to be judgmental and mean-spirited toward people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, I, I, that just can't come from us. Uh, so within that, that's the important context of everything I'm about to say. Let's be tender-hearted. First reason I, I say that is this: that homosexuality in society is the result of a society's failure to worship God. It's a communal sin problem or worship problem that's manifested in particular sin issues within individuals that God gives. Entire societies, communities, nations over to homosexuality because the nation corporately has got a worship problem. So, so in a very visible way, the men and women that are struggling very obviously with same-sex attraction are bearing the brunt. They're, they're the visible representation for the problem of worship in our society. That's the first thing that we have to know about it. That this is, God is giving people over to this. Because we, corporately, have got a worship problem. And you say, why would God do that? What is, what is the point? And 
The problem, and this is where it's hard to say, people always say, why is the church so caught up with sex? Why do we have to talk about sex so much? Well, it's because God created us to be creatures who worship. That is, He created us to be spiritual beings. And the other side of the coin of our spiritual reality and our constitution as human beings is that God created us to be sexual beings. And the two are intimately connected. Side note, if you want to know how are you doing spiritually, well, how are you doing sexually? It becomes a a thermometer of, of sorts to help us to gauge like sort of where we're at individually. How is our society doing spiritually? Well, how is our society doing sexually? Because what the Bible here says is that God is giving societies over to homosexuality and actually up above in verses 24, all kinds of sexual impurity. Then he zones in on homosexuality. Well, what's the connection? What, what, what is this homosexuality, false worship? How do they go together? Well, what's God's purpose for sexual intimacy? In Ephesians 5, the relationship of a husband and wife, which is the only biblical context for sexual intimacy, is to reflect the relationship that God has with his creatures with us his church so so the man represents christ in the metaphor the woman represents the church and you can't avoid the sexual imagery in ephesians 5 unless you have a celibate marriage which is not biblical so there's something about proper monogamous uh sexual intimacy within the context of a marriage that is supposed to communicate something that's deeply spiritual about God's relationship with his creatures. Now, what's the problem with homosexuality then? Well, biologically, the two bodies are different to represent different things. Homosexuality, therefore, is God's way of showing us the problem with improper worship. A man who has same-sex attraction for another man, that is a metaphorical picture, spiritually speaking, of self-worship. A woman who has same-sex attraction for another woman is, metaphorically speaking, A spiritual picture of self-worship. The man is worshiping himself. He's drawn to a copy of himself. The woman is drawn to a copy of herself. When God doesn't want us to be worshiping ourselves, He wants us to be worshiping Him. So homosexuality is God's way of, of showing us the problem with our worship. The self-focused nature. Now you might say to me, yes, but I know people in same-sex relationships and they're very giving. They give of themselves. They love each other. They serve one another. I've heard people say, you know, the best relationships that I've seen are between two men or two women. I'm not denying that that's possible. 
I'm talking about the metaphor on a physical level. Okay, I'm not talking about whether or not uh, sinners can get along. And I'm not talking just about people in same-sex relationships that are sinners. It's all of us, right? I'm not, I'm not saying can they sort of do better than, than people who are in heterosexual relationships within the relationship. I'm talking about the sexual spiritual metaphors that God has given us to teach us about the gospel and about worship. That's why God highlights here for us homosexuality. So then, next time you're interacting with somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, just realize that all of us have got uh, messed up sexual orientation at some level that God has to save us from. That's the first thing. So we're not so judgmental. Secondly, just recognize that those people are suffering as they are, whether they would call it suffering or not, because God has given our society over to this sexual spiritual metaphor about improper self-worship. And then hopefully that can help us to be much more gracious In light of this, what do we do? Well, I actually skipped a part. I'll just summarize it for you first. If we kept reading, we'll see that homosexuality is not the only thing that God hands us over to. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree deep down. That those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And that's not an exhaustive list. What Paul's doing there is he's listing every kind of possible sin. He says, because we've worshipped creation rather than the Creator, God's given us over to total depravity. That's really one way to say it. Total depravity, depraved at every level of who we are. If you think about it, that's exactly what happened in the fall. That with Adam and Eve, what came before total depravity was false worship. Self-worship. So there was a, a worship of creation rather than creator. The result of that was total depravity. God cast us off. Is homosexuality the worst? Is that why it's highlighted up at the top? Along with other sexual sins? Are, are sexual sins worse than every other kind of sin? I would say not. I don't think that every sin is equal. If I steal a candy bar from, from the variety store, that's not the same as killing my neighbor. It's not the same. I, I think as Christians we need to stop saying that every sin is equal. That's not true. Not every sin is equal. But I don't think in this chapter, chapter 1, that, that Paul is highlighting sexuality over other sins because it's the worst. 
it's because sexuality uniquely is the spiritual metaphor for worship. That's why he highlights it. Not that it is worse than other things. Not that all sins are, are equal. But sexuality is important to God because it's the created metaphor through which we understand our relationship with him. In chapter 3, we also learn that everyone is under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. That sort of summarizes total depravity. No one seeks after God. No one does anything that is good. Why? Because we as a race of creatures worship creation rather than the Creator. Okay, now, in light of this, what do we do? Well, the first thing is we have to realize that because of our total depravity, that we were born into this world worshiping creation, not the Creator. That's, that is the first thing. If you worship a triune God because of Jesus Christ and you recognize Him as God and you know that He is the Creator and you, you choose to worship Him as Creator above all else, just know that you weren't born into the world that way. Because all of us were born as fallen men and women, little babies, totally depraved sinners. Then you have to recognize that God is the one who sought you. He, he came for you. He poured His Spirit into your, into your heart so that you could have eyes to see. And you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness where you couldn't see these simple truths, where you, where you couldn't understand that, that God was the Creator and the only one deserving of your honor and thanks, to all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, He is greater than the creation. So that's the first thing. You have to recognize what God has done for you, that He sought you. He opened your eyes. He transferred you from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. Step two then, that becomes the foundation of our worship. We we praise God for saving us. And we say, God, we, we thank You. Thank You that You came after us. You didn't just allow us. You didn't just hand us over. As you handed over Adam and Eve and all of their children, that you came back for us. You sought us. You purchased us with a price through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you opened our eyes so that we could see. And that too ought to humble us, right? As we go out as evangelists. What's self-evident to us at one time was not self-evident to us. That which is so clear to us now at one time was not that clear. So we worship God for saving us. Now, I want us to take this a little bit further. I think as a church, we're get, we're, we kind of understand that. And we do focus a lot on, on the cross and the resurrection, the return of Christ, which is good. And, and now let's go back to the beginning then. The, the world needs a solution to all of the wickedness and evil and the problems that are out there. And so the solution is, if you go back to it, we in the church, let's honor God as Creator and give thanks to Him 
for everything that He's given to us, including our own lives. Say, oh God, thank you. And you know, if you get far enough along in that honor and thanksgiving, all of a sudden the fear of death even evaporates. It's like, oh God, you, you, you made me. I wouldn't even be here. And you're sustaining me. And one day you'll take me. And I worship you. So we give thanks to God all, for all that He has done. And whatever it is, small things, big things, we just, we have glad and generous hearts, as it says, we were reading that this morning, and, uh, and we're filled with thanksgiving. And that changes everything. It's really hard to have a bad day. No matter how bad your day is, it's really hard to have a bad day when you have the right perspective on God as Creator, you as creature, you as blind, now you can see. And not only that, the the additional promises of resurrection from the dead, eternal life, dominion in a new creation, eternal glory, relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. I mean, just keeps going. It's really hard to have a bad day when you have that perspective. And and I fall into this. I'm not, I have bad days. But you know what? On those bad days, I've got mixed up worship priorities. If, if we could do these things, just remembering who we were because our forefathers sinned, worshiping creation rather than the Creator. If we could remember that God came after us and saved us, and we could properly think about creation and the Creator, we have something that the world needs. And then we go out and we just share it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are making things clear to us. Even though worship has broken down for the human race, You're restoring worship through Your church. And so we want to be a people who worships You, honors You, and gives You thanks for opening our eyes for saving us and then for being our Creator. I pray that You would give us endurance in this perspective so that the things that we worship in part would fade. They would lose their, their luster, their, their desire in our eyes and our hearts. And then when we do have difficult days, we would still be worshiping you and giving thanks with glad and generous hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.